This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Richard Rhodes. Richard is a historian, a journalist, and is the author of the book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. During our conversation, Richard talks about the technology and the people that led to the creation of the atomic bomb, the threat of nuclear war in modern times, nuclear winter, how nuclear weapons are influencing the war in Ukraine, and how we might mitigate the risk of a nuclear exchange. Richard also talks about his book, Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. He details Ed Wilson's role in the history and science of evolution sociobiology and the application of the evolutionary lens on human nature, the role of genes in human behavior, and his role in environmentalism and conservation. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Richard Rhodes. All right, Richard. Well, uh, thank you again so much for doing this. I've been really looking forward to talking to you and talking about E.O. Wilson. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you. My pleasure. I love to start, I would love to start with you like I start with many of my guests in, in getting an ample background for the listeners to learn about how you came to be such a prolific writer and how you got interested in E.O. Wilson's life. And I know you have written many, many books on a variety of different topics. How do you think about that story for yourself? How did you get, in, get interested in, in writing and writing nonfiction books in the first place? I started out as a novelist. Well, I should go back all the way to my adolescence and say that I lived at a boy's home and I met a girl at church camp who lived 75 miles away. And I therefore, there was no way I could see her in person. So in one year, I wrote her 400 letters. (laughs) Really, I think I learned how to write then because if you're writing more than one letter a day, you're just going to have to write about make stuff up. So, But I also was going to be a minister in the Methodist Church, and I started writing sermons as a, in my late teens. I actually got to the point of being what's called a local preacher. I had a license to marry people and bury people, although I never actually did any of that. But that evolved over a four years at Yale into a, a scholarship that I won into into a really deep interest in history. My major was history. I was in a senior program where I wrote a 100-page thesis. That was really, in a way, my first book. So I evolved over the years toward writing, but thought I was going to be a novelist. Mm -hmm. And my first four books, with one exception, were novels. But the, the sales declined across the four books. And I finally wrote a novel that my agent my editor didn't think could be published. And I stopped and really had to think hard about why. Mm 
And it was set at Los Alamos during the war. So it was about the development of the atomic bomb, except it was, it was a love story. And there was so much going on in the bomb program that it overwhelmed this thin little love story that was the spine of the book. And I realized that I really should tell that story as nonfiction. And just about that time, the mid-1970s, the, the authorities decided to declassify an enormous amount of information about the Manhattan Project. So there was this kind of perfect storm where I realized I should turn to writing nonfiction and the material suddenly became available to write a book on the basis of documentation instead of simply interviews, as some of the previous versions of that story had been. Hmm. And I began and I began writing the book that became The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which was 800 pages and five years out of my life, hmm. a very difficult time financially to put the money together to spend five years writing full time. But I did manage it. And when it won a Pulitzer Prize and every other major award that year, I realized that I was, if you will, doomed to writing that version. <laughs> but of course, I loved it. And, and it's a wonderful, it, I, I describe it as trying to do the Sistine Chapel in mosaic tile, yeah. because it's a bunch of little tiny facts that you assemble to make a bigger picture. And that's the challenge and that's the fascination, really. So that, it, I, as so many writers did in the days before writing programs, I sort of backed into writing and have now published some, more than 26 books and continue to write regularly and will until the day I die, as far as, as, far as I'm concerned. Yeah. The, the, the moment for you when you had to course correct, write the propensity for writing novels and then the you know the sobering realization that you might have to shift course w what do you remember about that realization and how difficult was it for you to to make that switch from doing what you seems like wanted to do by instinct and then you know had a collision with reality that needed to have some sort of effect on on how you were spending your time and energy the primary stress was really financial. Yeah. I turned in a book that the publisher couldn't accept. Uh, authors received what are called, as you know, advances, hmm. uh, payments up front that are to be earned back by the sales of the book when the book is done. Uh, if you don't turn in a book, you have to turn the advance back in. Hmm. So I was a young man with two young children. Uh, and it really was a, a very difficult time. But but grants came along from foundations, God bless foundations, hmm. for any writer who's writing serious nonfiction these days, especially. Hmm. Unless you're already a bestseller, the odds of your seeing a large advance on a book enough to support yourself for the time it takes to write research and write the book uh, are slim. Hmm. And the the fill-in for that today, there's not a lot of it around, but there is some, is, is grants from foundations that want to support the writing of books in whatever subject area their, their uh, charter uh, sets up for them. In this case, for me, it was the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which has, Alfred P. Sloan was one of the founders of General Motors, so of course, mm -hmm. he left behind a considerable estate. Uh, 
and it was left to the foundation to communicate issues of science and technology to the general public. And that was what this atomic bomb project really was obviously going to be. So I immediately got some support. I got some from the Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, other foundation pieces and pieced together. I also borrowed from my mother-in-law, uh, ghost wrote a sex manual for a couple of psychiatrists at Stanford, did whatever I had to do to make this whole thing work. Uh, and then, of course, with the with the connection to a Pulitzer and the other awards, it was much easier the next time to yeah. get a substantial advance for a book. So that was the primary strain. What I did discover and what was really quite fortuitous was that writing novels really prepared me to write narrative nonfiction. I was already used to developing characters. I like to tell audiences when we're talking about this subject that for me, there's as the writer, and I'm not talking about readers, but the writer, there's no difference really between writing fiction and nonfiction, except that nonfiction has to be connected to a series of verifiable external reference, whereas fiction has to have its own kind of internal structure that that supports its authenticity for the reader. They're two different things in that way, but you still have to deal with plot, you have to deal with character, you have to deal with the larger arc of a book, uh, with with concern for the audience staying interested. Uh, all those things really are common to both forms. And so what I learned writing four novels really set me up to write, I think, narrative nonfiction at a time when when academics were basically moving away from that kind of history and had decided that it was wasn't as as profoundly scientific as they would like as all of the humanistic disciplines keep trying to become sciences because science is the most prestigious field uh, in intellectual work these days. Yeah. So, so all, it was a vastly valuable experience. And, and I did have tools in hand from my earlier work that have consistently been helpful and useful. Yeah. All the, yeah. I know. I know. Uh, we're going to spend most of this conversation talking about E.O. Wilson. I would be remiss without diving into your reflections on that book and that writing process a little bit, at least. Um, all these years later, thinking back on, you know, what a, about that book? What do you think it was about it that resonated to such a degree? That it really did put you on the map. You've already talked about the fact that you won the Pulitzer Prize for that book, but you know, there had been other books that had approached what had happened uh, in the creation of the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project. What do you, what did you uncover or, or how do you think you framed that story that allowed for there to be such critical and public interest in, in what you found? The previous books had been based on interviews, so they were limited in many ways. The technology of the Manhattan Project had been classified. Mm. That was limited to what people in interviews felt they could discuss because once you signed on for a secrecy, a secret uh, clearance, you weren't signed on for life. You're never supposed to talk about those things. Mm. So the previous efforts had really not had access. 
I decided that I was going to write wherever there was anything about the Manhattan Project or the history of nuclear physics hmm. that I didn't personally understand. I was going to track it down and put it into this book. That's why the book was so long. But I think it was also why the book ended up being so rich. Hmm. I mean, someone asked me once, what are you doing with the history of the, of the, uh, the Jewish diaspora in a book on the Manhattan Project? But I couldn't figure out how the Jews who became many of the scientists who came to America when the Nazis took power and became leaders in the Manhattan Project, how they ended up in the Western South Russia. Hmm. <laughs> so I went back and wrote a little half a chapter about the, the diaspora. And, and it was that level of detail, but also combined with the rich record of oral histories that the scientists had, had de deposited in various places, with the chance to interview many of them in the last years of their lives. Mm -hmm. When the book came out, one of them who was younger and still living, Louis Alvarez, mm -hmm. Nobel laureate at, the Ber at Berkeley, wrote an endorsement for the book. And he said, uh, there's very little chance that anyone can top this because these people are all gone now. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't get a chance that all of these pieces came together, mm -hmm. and I stuffed them all into an 800 page narrative. And I've had plenty of readers who said, boy, that first third of the book was all nuclear physics. <laughs> What are you doing with that there? And I always tell them, look, if you want to start with the beginning of the Manhattan Project, skip the first part. Mm -hmm. But I put that there because readers always wonder where this great discovery came from, mm -hmm. and as if it were somehow something that the scientists could have gotten together in the dark of night and said, let's not do this. Let's, yeah. not, let's not introduce this to the world. Mm -hmm. But in fact, of course, the whole linkage to the history of nuclear physics made it clear that there was no way this could be kept a secret. Hmm. And filling in that kind of background, I felt prepared the reader to really understand how profound this whole business was. And it was profound. It was as major a change in the world, I think, as the discovery of fire, hmm. nuclear physics, and nuclear, yeah. and all of the things that followed from it. So. I wanted to master this subject at a level and a depth and a richness that had not been touched before. And the tools had suddenly become at hand mm -hmm. and the people were available. And I just put it all together in one big book and readers, I consistently to this day get letters from readers saying this is the best book I've ever read. Yeah. So, yeah. I was literally I got, looking, I was looking at the reviews of that this morning and, and uh, yeah. many, many people are, are still writing that on your on your Amazon page, and I, you know, as a as a layman, as an American, you've already talked about the fact that you wrote about the technical details of of the technology that was developed and some of the narrative um, stories of what what happened in Los Alamos and the development of of the bomb. What do you what do you think the public you know, information from that book that you think the public still doesn't understand correctly about your research in your book or just key insights that are not widely distributed from your research that you think, if there is anything that comes to mind, um, might be helpful for people to to know or to keep in mind in modern times? 
Well, I think what the, the most important and central uh, thing that people, certainly governments, still don't seem to understand is that on the one hand, the introduction of nuclear weapons, vastly destructive weapons, particularly when we got to hydrogen bombs, yeah. arbitrarily large, uh, really put an end to world-scale war. There have been no world-scale wars. I mean, we think that Putin is involved today in a world war, but it's not really a world war. Yeah. Not if World War II, when I was a boy and was growing up, I was eight years old in 1945, and I remember World War II vividly. The whole world was convulsed. Everything changed for those four or five years. That's the good side. But the other side is we continually are at risk of the destruction of the entire human world because we have not moved beyond this primitive notion that if we have a lot of bombs and the other guy has a lot of bombs, neither side will use the bombs. Mm. has just made clear something that originally was developed as an idea by the Indians and the Pakistanis in the late 90s, that one way you can use nuclear weapons as a threat, contrary to the whole deterrent idea, which is neither side's going to start a war, because mm because nuclear, both sides are committing suicide, essentially, that this new notion that Putin is playing with, and it's pretty terrifying, is if I have nuclear weapons, then I can go ahead and fight a conventional war because my enemy isn't going to attack me with nuclear weapons. Therefore, nuclear weapons, in Putin's point of view, made the world safe. For, for conventional war, not world war. If it got to that point, as we're very clear, I think these days, it would go nuclear. And no mm. one wants to do that, not even Putin, I don't think, I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, but, but the fact that both sides have nuclear weapons in a way locks them into conventional fighting. Mm. And that's a terrifying fact. And that's what we're seeing right now in Ukraine. Putin clearly felt he could make that move, partly because he misunderstood the Ukrainian people and thought somehow they were going to join the party, uh, quite literally, actually, now that I yeah. think of it. But, but in addition to that, he felt people would back off from any large-scale participation. And we have. You know, we haven't actually gone to war yet. Mm. And I, I don't think we will, we, the United States, directly. But... There is this new and terrifying factor that has to do with the fundamental truth that as long as there are nuclear weapons in the world, the odds of their eventually being used are very high from accident, from, from subversion, from who knows what. And the answer to that, I think, is very clear. And that's in the book as well. It's in the next book. It's mm -hmm. in Dark Sun, my, my sequel to to the making of the atomic bomb. And it was developed by Robert Oppenheimer on a committee of, of industrialists working in something called the Atchison Lilienthal Commission in 1946, which is how do you have a world where people know how to build nuclear weapons, but you somehow get rid of the weapons? And the answer really is, you. you it's as simple as thinking of how long does it take to deliver a given set of weapons? Right now, delivery time is 30 minutes after a decision and less than that in Europe and, and, and Russia. Mm. If you 
take those weapons apart and move the parts 10 miles away from each other, delivery time suddenly becomes a couple of hours. Mm. If you if you dismantle the weapons and put them in a warehouse, delivery time may go to six months, buying you time to do whatever else is possible, negotiate diplomacy, even a, a conventional war if necessary, before either side can assemble their weapons again and use them. So there is a way actually to have a deterrent world without the additional threat of an accidental or whatever use of the weapons immediately because someone misunderstood a signal. Mm. And that I think people don't really understand yet. Yeah. And it has not been to the advantage of nation states to take that position. No one has really worked that hard at it. Uh, you recall that uh, uh, Barack Obama got a Nobel Peace Prize for and gave a great speech about just this issue. But it all fell away in the fact that a lot of the difficulty with getting control of nuclear weapons is domestic politics between Democrats and Republicans in our country. And until that's resolved in some way, I don't know that we're going to get very far. So that's the real, I think, deep message of that book. I know um, in in books I have read about the people who were instrumental in creating that technology, and you know, then after the Second World War, when we had used a couple of atomic bombs on Japan, that they all seemed collectively to be um, horrified and um, just deeply concerned about what the te- what the technology that they had created would bring to the world eventually, and. You just went over a, a way to maybe mitigate some of the some of the risks there, and I you know, you have spent many years on this topic and are are a world expert on you know what happened in the Manhattan Project and what uh, the details are of atomic technology. What else do you think, if anything, comes to mind? You know, Western countries or countries in general might be able to do to mitigate the risk of. Um, the, the destructive force of these technologies it's it, it seemed to me in in my own lifetime that we were kind of lulled into a delusion that this was this technology was no longer a risk and in the last couple months it's this subject again has become um utterly relevant in in determining what's happening currently in in eurasia how do you think about that in general if if there are any other you know, strategies or, um, you know, game theory hypotheses that come to mind. Um, again, I'd be remiss if not to ask you your yeah. thoughts on the subject. Well, there have been efforts, continuous efforts since the end of the war to, to uh, cage this threat in the structures that, that our societies have had for centuries to deal with things like this. For example, and most obviously, diplomacy, treaties. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, when everyone kind of breathed a sigh of relief that we hadn't managed to destroy ourselves, and it was so much closer than it seemed at the time, and it was terrifying at the time, I remember it vividly. Hmm. 
but we didn't know at the time. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, went to a meeting 20 years later in Cuba of the participants, including Russian generals and so forth, to do a sort of postmortem on this horribly close call the world came to in, in 1962 and discovered to his horror, he had not known at the time of the crisis, that there had been warheads on missiles in Cuba. We thought they were just then being shipped on freighters from the Soviet Union. There were already missiles at hand. Mm -hmm. In fact, Castro tried very hard to get uh, Khrushchev to let him use them, <laughs> in which case it would have been the end of everything uh, to the extent that, that there were enough bombs around at that point. We had a lot more than the Soviets did at that time. Mm. Uh, but there have been efforts ever since then. One that, one that followed from the Cuban Missile Crisis was the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which was signed in 1968 and took effect in 1970 and committed non-nuclear nations, and for that matter, nuclear nations, except they didn't follow up on their commitment, to, in the case of the non-nuclear nations, to agree not to build a nuclear arsenal in exchange for knowledge and technology for peaceful uses, most of all for nuclear power. And Kennedy at that time had been advised by the CIA that there would likely be 30 nuclear powers within a couple decades which horrified him, of course. What would the odds be that someone wouldn't go to war with nuclear weapons under those circumstances? So he and the Soviet Union really worked together to get this treaty passed. And many countries realized that it was not to their advantage to build nuclear weapons. And here was a, was a way to be rewarded for not doing so. And so today we have nine nuclear powers and not 30 or 40. But the nine nuclear powers committed to working toward eliminating their arsenals, and they haven't really followed through, obviously. There, there, there were only five when the treaty was signed. Of course, some have followed since then, like North Korea, hmm. and Pakistan, and so forth, India. Uh, we haven't really followed through on our agreement. And it was a near thing 25 years after that treaty was signed, when it was supposed to be reviewed for renewal. Most treaties are perpetual. Once they're signed, they, they go on perpetually until they're broken, as it were. Yeah. But in this case, because the other countries were so suspicious of the nuclear powers, rightly so, that they wouldn't fulfill their commitment to the treaty to try to eliminate their arsenals that they said, we're going to review this treaty in 25 years and see if you've followed through. And it was only because of the very dedicated work of an American diplomat named Thomas Graham, who's a friend of mine. He went around to 60 countries over the course of two years and talked to their leaders and talked them into agreeing to, to extend the treaty indefinitely, as other treaties typically are. Hmm. So, Tom saved the day by his arguments, but we still haven't, of course, we still haven't moved in the direction. In fact, we're, the United States, for example, right now is supposedly modernizing, whatever that means, its nuclear arsenal. We constantly change out the structure of our weapons anyway, because 
there are various kinds of corrosion that get, get into them in, in the course of time. These are volatile materials and so forth. So it's not as if we need a modernized arsenal. But that was the deal the Republicans wanted in order to agree to any treaties. And some of the treaties that have been signed after the end of the Cold War. In any case, my point is, we're still kind of hung up, but we're trying to surround. There are now uh, treaties in Africa that no country will hold nuclear weapons, hmm. in the South Pacific that no country will hold nuclear weapons, and so on and so on. So there, there is a move to, if you will, bound the nuclear powers with a world that doesn't doesn't approve of nuclear weapons, has pledged not to build them themselves. And in a sense, to put a moral pressure, yeah. rather than the way uh, it happened over the years with slavery. There was slowly a transformation in the way people thought about slavery, because it became a moral issue for countries and their international prestige and so forth. So there's a continual pressure toward eliminating nuclear weapons in the world. But it's really difficult for nation states that think they give them power. You know, when India tested a series of bombs in 1998, the defense minister in India said, now the big boys will have to let us sit at the table with them. Hmm. So the national so-called prestige of being a nuclear power is floating around in the background as well. It's a very complicated issue, and I understand it is. Yeah. And we haven't made the progress we should have, but we have made some. It's amazing to me when I think about the details of you know, the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, as you just said, you know, knowledge that even Robert McNamara didn't have at the time of um, what the Cubans possessed and when. And given the fallibility of human nature and the the poor judgment of uh, you know world leadership, it's it's incredible to me that there hasn't been already more um, nuclear exchanges since the end of the Second World War. And I, I guess I would uh, you know before we move on to the primary subject of the conversation, how do you think about the? the odds that we can really continue with this, um, you know, largely success in not um, blowing up the entire world. You know, uh, you, you, I know you have a family. Um, I think you have grandkids. How do you think about that? Do you think there's a fighting chance that we can, we can continue to not use these devastating technologies and not actually eliminate all of global civilization? Well, I wish I were confident, but I'm afraid I'm not because what no one knew during the Cuban Missile Crisis and for many years thereafter was the phenomenon of nuclear winter. Uh, this really didn't become clear until some studies that Carl Sagan and other scientists were doing of, of all things, dust storms on Mars, mm. where, where the dust storms cover the whole planet sometimes and blot out the minimal sunlight that Mars gets anyway, and drop the temperature on the surface of that planet 20, 30, 40, 50 degrees in a matter of weeks. When those scientists realized, started thinking about what a nuclear war would do, 
They thought about all the burning cities with all the combustible materials. They thought about all the burning forests with all the combustible materials. And they did some calculations and realized that a nuclear winter from a full-scale nuclear exchange in this world would reduce average annual temperature by 20 degrees for 10 or 15 years at least because of the smoke and the soot and the uh, uh, nitrous oxides that would the smog that would get into the atmosphere. They were horrified and they published several papers on it in the late 1980s with a predictable response from right-wingers like Edward Teller that, oh, they're wrong. But, but they've tested this, the theory out in many different ways, particularly now because they have much better atmospheric models from looking at global warming. And the latest study, which was done in 2007, reviewing those earlier uh, results using a much simplified atmospheric model, they found it would be even worse than they thought before. Then they decided, well, let's take a look at what a little regional war would look like, a little regional war. India and Pakistan exchanging each 50 warheads exploded over the cities of those two countries. 100 bombs, total yield of one and a half megatons, less than some of the weapons we have in our stockpile. And they discovered to their horror that a sort of modified nuclear winter would occur with an average temperature drop around the world from that smoke slowly drifting worldwide of about two to three degrees, which doesn't sound like much, but it turns out it would be enough to to basically kill a lot of agriculture. So they calculated that the prompt destructiveness of the weapons killing Indians and Pakistanis would be about 20 million deaths. But the effect of this sort of modified nuclear winter would be up to 2 billion deaths. So even a small regional nuclear war, which people used to sotto voce say to themselves, well, maybe there'll be a little nuclear war and that will convince the rest of us to get rid of our weapons. Oh no, we're very much deep in the frying pan. So. On the one hand, I would like to think that this gradual squeeze play by diplomacy and by the non-nuclear nations of the world is going to eventually force the nuclear powers to, to change their attitude about nuclear weapons. But I don't know if we have the time. There were something like 13 near misses during the Cold War, times when we came within hours of a nuclear exchange. The one that I always remember was in 1983 during the Reagan era when there had been a lot of hostility back and forth because Reagan was doubling the defense budget and building more weapons and so forth. Uh, We had an annual autumn field exercise with NATO in Europe where all the troops came out and worked out and tried use their machines and so forth. This particular year, it was one of the years when they also brought heads of state in to practice making the decision to go nuclear. <laughs> and Andropov was the head of the Soviet Union at the time, former head of the KGB. He was pretty paranoid. And when he saw this, this was a classic way Soviet Union always went to war, as we saw it recently in, in, uh, uh, I'm blocking on the name. Oh, Ukraine, of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
they they pretend they're having a military exercise and that gets them in position and then they move on to a full-scale attack that's exactly what he thought was happening from nato's side and he was scrambling planes in east germany with nuclear weapons aboard it was uh, they were doing things like checking on the whether people were stockpiling a lot of blood supplies at hospitals in washington their diplomats were going out seeing if people were buying and selling a lot of blood i mean that's that's the way they were so he was ready to 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 beat us to the punch but of course our punch was mere practice and his would not have been mm -hmm. and it was only when reagan heard about this scrambling of aircraft that he said whoa wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and had everything, everybody stand down and send a message to Moscow saying, no, 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 that's not what we're doing, that the whole thing was, was slowed down. It was after that, not long after that, that Reagan spoke to the UN and coined the phrase, uh, nuclear war could never be won and must never be fought. Mm. But that kind of thing happened a lot, many more than I think we have ever been told from what I've heard from government people. So it's not as if we're out of the frying pan. We're very much still in it and will be until such a time as we can get a handle and walk back the delivery time on all these weapons. Yeah. So we're going to transition to a very different uh, yes. subject yeah, altogether <laughs> and, uh, and transition to, a, you know, from my perspective, a very, a very lovely man. Um, who I said before we started recording, um, I had loved and sought out his interviews and information for for years, and he recently passed. Um, I think it was December twenty sixth of two thousand twenty one was the day that he died. Edward Wilson. I'd love to get in starting the conversation about Ed to learn about your uh, background interest in him as a as a writer, as a nonfiction, as a nonfiction writer, what is that story for you? How, how did you come to know about Ed or, and get interested in him in the first place? You know, biology is kind of not part of my range. I tend to write about things in physics, maybe a little bit in chemistry, but I don't really know anything about chemistry. And I knew even less about biology. My last biology course was a course in vocational agriculture in high school when i learned how to put what kind of worms chickens have and so forth that was the limit of it uh but i met ed originally when i think probably when i read his absolutely wonderful book on human nature i'm not sure why i read it but i've read widely and always have and i think that was a book that just caught my eye I was then working, I was, I used to be a magazine writer. That's how I paid the bills. I used to write a magazine piece for a national magazine 10 times a year, which was a real scramble. Because often I didn't know anything about the subject at the beginning of the month, and I had to turn in a piece that sounded knowledgeable by the end of the month. So it really was a scramble. Uh, I was working on a piece on why, why men rape. And I was curious about if there was any genetic component to that behavior. Mm. Since then, I've come to understand that there are not genetic components to violent behavior. It's a learned process. It's not something you're born with. Hitler was not born to be Hitler. He was just a little baby like the rest of us. 
he had a brutal father who beat him so often that he often went into comas after the beating. So he, he learned how to be violent as, as people do. But I, at that time, I, I didn't know that. And I was, I wondered what someone like Ed, who had recently published, I think, Sociobiology, his book that argued that there are aspects of human behavior not specific behaviors, but broad sort of learning processes and, and, and skills that, that have genetic components. He argued eventually about 10% of our behavior is genetically based. Uh, and we, could, we should talk about that later because that's mm -hmm. actually a low number. Uh, so I, I called him up and he said, sure, come on up and let's talk about it. So I went to Cambridge. I was living my my birth town, Kansas City, Missouri at the time. And we just hit it off. You know, I had a sort of a hard scramble childhood like his. I was a city version of Ed. He wandered around the woods. I wandered around the city, uh, made my way on my own, made my life on my own. So we connected just I'm from Missouri, which is a pretty southern state. He's from Alabama, which is a very southern state. Uh, we both were scholarship students and so forth. So we had a lot in common and we stayed in touch after that. And over the years talked more than once about I should write his biography, but I, I couldn't find a publisher that thought he was important enough to do that. <laughs> it took a long time before I did find such a publisher. And as we turned, as he turned, 90, actually 89, when I started working in this, this biography. And I'm 84 at this point, so it's what, six years younger than he was. Uh, we realized I'd better get it done. Mm -hmm. He wasn't around forever, and neither was I. And as it turned out, he, he died just a month after the book was published. Was much to my surprise, because he was still vigorous. Mm -hmm. He was still writing. Uh, in fact, he was working on a vast synthesis of uh, of, of ecology, something that no one's ever pulled all the separate strains together into one place. And that was Ed's gift. He was a synthesizer. So we agreed it was time. And I had to leave my publisher because they didn't see the value in supporting such a book. Mm. And I went to Doubleday, which fortunately did see the value. And the Sloan Foundation supported the biography of a major scientist. So we finally got the job done and just in time. I thought Ed was good for another three or four or five years. I hoped I would be too. So, but in fact, unfortunately, he he was having trouble with balance, as we often do as we get older. And he tripped one day and fell and cracked a rib and punctured a lung. And about two weeks later, he was gone. His wife had recently died. So not surprisingly, he didn't last either. I wish he had. He would have been. He did get to see the book, which was a great pleasure. So we were friends. Mm. And this was not an authorized biography as such, but he agreed to cooperate in every way he could in exchange for reading the manuscript for the factual accuracy. And he didn't find any misplaced facts when he finally, but he did find some split infinitives or something he didn't like. We corrected those. Mm. We got along well together. And that's really why ultimately he was a towering figure and not as well known as some other. I mean, he's he certainly was not in terms of the level of discovery, uh, James Watson, as he was the first to say, but he was 
a profoundly important figure in the history of the science of evolution, mm. and then increasingly of ecology as he moved over into that field as well. For, for people who are listening to this that may have heard his name, but don't know much about him, when you're asked the question, you know, who, who was this guy? Um, and maybe to begin at the, at the start of his life, you said this already, he had a, a hard scrabble life himself, which I, I knew from, from reading about him. How do you think about his upbringing and what launched him into being who he became? One of the things that I have noticed repeatedly about people who are good in their fields, whether it be movie stars or scientists or singers, they all started in childhood. It's very rare that someone didn't start early on in childhood to become what they became for the obvious reason that you get your 10,000 hours in before you're even formally trained. Mm. Uh, there's a wonderful story about Yehudi Menuhin who discovered at 18, the violinist, who discovered at 18 that his virtuosity on the violin had left him suddenly as he became an adult and that he was going to have to compete with that fruit that prodigious child he had been and relearn how to do everything he knew how to do as a child. That's kind of an exception to what I'm talking about. But the truth is, the people I've written about who are particularly in science started early. And I think it's because you just get such a marvelous head start. So Ed was the child of uh, a lovely mother, and a father who was a uh, smoking, drinking, gambling, alcoholic, who was also uh, an auditor for the Rural Electrification Agency in Washington of new rural electrification systems. He was, in other words, he was a CPA in effect who went out and audited these programs. So he wandered around all over the South doing checking into these systems and dragged his family around with him. Uh, Ed's mother and father divorced when Ed was, I think, eight years old, which was very unusual back in the early 1930s. Mm. And he went with his father because his mother really didn't have the money to, to support a child at that time. A little later, she remarried to someone who was a fairly prosperous businessman. But by then, he was his father's with his father. And he basically was just turned out on his own. Uh, he would be sent off to live with some people in the summer on a shore somewhere in the, uh, uh, in the south and, and spend his summer wandering around the beaches with no supervision whatsoever. And he was an only child in addition. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he learned to operate on his own. He was kind of a Huck Finn. Hmm. Uh, almost exactly a barefoot boy in the woods. And he fell in love with nature because that was that was his world. Those those were his companions. Those were the things that he lived among and, and put feelings into, uh, studied as he as well he could. When he was 13 years old, living at that time uh, in Alabama uh, on the on the shore at a, in a port city, he decided to do a complete survey of the insects in a vacant lot next door to the family house. And 
there were four species of ants that he found in that vacant lot. And one of them had built a little mound in one corner. And after he got stung by these little ants a few times and finally figured out what they were, he was one of the first people in the entire country to identify the first invasion of fire ants of, of Argentine, or I guess they're now called imported red fire ants. There was a kind of fire ant that lived in the south then, a black fire ant, but it never made much much expansion into the rest of the country because it had natural predators. When these new red ants came in, like weeds, they didn't have any natural predators. They first destroyed all the little black fire ants, and then they started spreading almost like a shockwave from an explosion five kilometers a, a year from Mobile, where they came ashore in a ship that had carried them accidentally from Uruguay. There point of origin was actually Brazil, where again, they lived a fairly contained, balanced environment because there were natural predators there, but there weren't any in the US. And these ants just spread across the country. He was one of the first people at 13. It, it, it didn't lead to anything immediately because he wasn't in a position to write scientific papers yet. But by the time he was 18 and, and started college, the state of Alabama hired him to do a report on the fire ants of Alabama. Uh, and that was his first scientific work before he'd even gotten very far into college. So he got going early and became, and this is what people I think immediately think of with that. He's, he's the king of the ants. He was the, the world's leading experts, expert on social insects and particularly on ants. He's the one who really, well, he made a couple of really crucial discoveries that I think everyone understands now about ants. No one knew until he figured it out how ants communicate to each other. Some thought because of the way they tweedle antennas when they meet each other, that maybe there was some sort of sound process. But most insects don't work with sound because they live underground and sound doesn't travel very well through soil. So they communicate typically with pheromones, with smell trails. And Ed started checking that out and pretty quickly identified. Uh, he would he would take various ants and crush them and pick from various glands on their little bodies, a little bit of the fluid on a piece of balsam and put that down in front, draw a little trail back to an ant colony he maintained in his office that by then he was a professor at Harvard uh, and see which ones they followed and which ones they didn't. And he tried everything. He tried magnetism. He tried everything he could think of to see how these things communicate. Once he realized it was it was a, a fluid that their bodies pr produced, then it was a matter of finding which gland. And he tried one gland after another. He had this giant magnifying glass to pry apart a little tiny ant body. There were 30, 30 or 40 different glandular substance that ants produced. There was one tiny little gland, so gland, so small, it was barely visible through this big lens. And he couldn't afford the elaborate apparatus that you could use to look at very small objects, you know, power microscopes and stuff. So he just had to do his best with a magnifying glass. He found this little tiny gland that, that extruded a substance into the into the anus of the ant and out 
out on its stinger. And these ants had stingers and they would almost like riding with a pen. Mm. They would drag their little stinger behind them and put little dots of the stuff as they moved toward a, a, a piece of food, let's say. And once he got some of that stuff and put it on a piece of balsam and drew a line from the colony, the ants just exploded out of the nest and followed this trail to the end, expecting a glorious reward. And since he'd drawn the trail, there wasn't anything there. They just milled around in confusion. That was probably Ed's most important discovery, how ants communicate with each other. They have about 25 different words that they write with this substance and other glands as well. It wasn't so simple as just one gland. There are like 10 that are used for communications, but they're all pheromonal trails that the ant makes. Yeah. He made other discoveries as well, some of which were really comedy. I'll tell you a funny story later, but, but uh, that was probably his most important contribution. He was, um... You know, in some ways, you you just described his his upbringing. He was a a bit of a loner, a, a guy who was obsessed with learning about ants. You know, there's an ex, an an eccentric component to his personality that I think um, if you're hearing about him for the first time, you would probably imagine, and that is in my read probably pretty true about him. But he was also, I guess, from my perspective, in learning about his his work, just a vastly broad thinker as well. And this is a subject that I know I, I wanted to discuss with you, which I think you talked a little bit uh, before we started recording, related to how he applied what he learned about animals to us. Yeah. And I would love to hone in on that moment. I think in the 70s, when he wrote a book, I believe, called Sociobiology, which was taking an approach to researching really insects, animals in general, and applying them in many ways to human nature. Uh, you know, I know there's a story about him with a glass of water in a, in a, in a lecture hall. I'd love to give you an opportunity to, to present that story of what he, he thought he had, he was gleaning from his uh, time with, insects that led him to develop some theories about that led to sociobiology and and what about those ideas were so yes for some people disturbing and and even dangerous yes um i'd love for you to tell tell that story if if you can ed uh is was one of those people who kept growing in the range of his thinking and his work the ant stories I just told are from an early time in his career when he was focused on doing the kind of research you have to do to develop the authority to deal on a larger scale with, with aspects of science. So he started out with these specific studies of ant behavior, but he very quickly started expanding. And thus he and one of his colleagues wrote a book called uh, the insects, which is basically everything that was known about insect life, social insect life, up to the time the book was finished in 1971. Mm. It's about 800 pages, big wide pages. It's a very large book. But 
having covered that, Ed felt that someone should then do the uh, creatures with spines. All the rest of us insects, of course, don't have spines. They have exoskeletons. Hmm. So, but he thought someone had better do, do the, the, the mammals, the birds, all the other class of, of animals in the world. He didn't initially plan to do humans. Uh, he, that, that had always been kind of a taboo subject in, the, in biology, except in terms of evolution. And look what Darwin's still getting attacked for. So I didn't want to go that far. He didn't even want to write that book. He was not a specialist in animals with backbones. He's a specialist in insects, but he couldn't find anyone else who would do it. So he thought, all right, I'll do it. And he sat down and read every paper he could find uh, and synthesized this rich mass of material. So the book starts out with, with simple uh, organisms and moves forward through to mammals. And then he realized, I'm going to have to do humans as well. I can't leave them out. I can't say they're not part of the kingdom. Of course they are. He really was hesitant, but he, but he decided to go ahead. So the last chapter in this book, Sociobiology, is very tentatively about what aspects of human behavior might have genetic components. And he doesn't say, you know, if you if you shake hands with your right hand, that's a genetic thing. He doesn't say that genes may determine your style of dress. But he does suggest that some of the broad skills and learning, some of the attitudes different people have toward, toward uh, uh, taking risks and so forth might have genetic components. And where there's evidence in the literature, he pulls up those papers and summarizes them. Not at all some bold move to say we're all automatons, but that book was published at a time when there was a curious movement in science, particularly around Harvard and Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, not Cambridge University, mm -hmm. to somehow mix Marxism in with science. There was a little little uh, group of people around Harvard who were perceived themselves to be Marxist believers in the communist approach. Uh, and they thought science ought somehow to be subsumed under that. Well, the fundamental philosophic background of communism is the belief that people are infinitely malleable and that if you bring in a whole new system, you, they will adapt to it within a generation. Uh, that means that there's no such thing as genetic basis for anything in human behavior. That means that humans are to believed to be by these people uh, tabula rasa, blank slates when they're born, and that therefore you can impose anything on them. Well. That's not true, and I think the evidence is clear that's not true. But when they saw Ed's book, they just piled on. And in the most egregious attack that he suffered in the pages of the New York Review of Books, which had become by then kind of the leading popular intellectual journal in America, they wrote a letter which was published uh, in response to a review of sociobiology. And 
they wrote a letter saying this is not only wrong at every level, but it looks like the old eugenics movement and it heads, it points us toward a world where Nazism and the, the murder of people who are considered inferior can be seen. Ed was shocked and horrified and really nonplussed. And he was a man of considerable poise, more so as he got older. But at that point, he still wasn't quite as secure as he came to be in his own feeling that he had done the homework and that what he made statements about was correct. Mm. So for a couple of days, he really was shaken. He told me, he said, I thought I'd been somehow found out. I thought that my career was ruined, that I would be thrown out of Harvard. It took about three days for him to think it through. And what he did was go back and look at the evidence that he used to adduce what conclusions he had come to. And then he just got mad. Mm. <laughs> and he wrote a, a response letter basically saying, you're wrong and I'm right. And what is your problem? And I don't believe those things. And I'm certainly not a racist. And here's the evidence for that. And he wasn't. What's curious is it was kind of the early days of the present day feeling that each ethnic or racial group has its own sort of cultural structure that, mm. that serves to be preserved independently. Ed was more a Martin Luther King uh, believer, humanist, and King's point of view was in his famous speech, I've been up on the mountain and I've seen the white Southerners and African Americans sit down to get the table together. It was more a sort of amalgamation belief. And it was that amalgamation thing that bothered some of the people who were attacking Ed. And then there was this sort of Marxist component that came in as well. It was a cause celeb of the first water. Ed was, there was a riot in, in Harvard Square about people, students saying he should be fired. There were students standing up in class and denouncing him. And he was pretty shy, really, hmm. even though he presented himself in a sort of wonderful, warm, Southern gentlemanly way. It was pretty shocking to him to have these constant attacks. He told me later, and I don't know how much this was just bravado. He said, you know, I wasn't so much worried for myself. I thought I could handle things. I was worried for my family, hmm. his wife and his daughter, living in Cambridge, of course, where he lived. And he was afraid they'd be attacked. It culminated in a series of national meetings that two in particular, one of the National Organization of Anthropologists, they were going to vote down his giving a lecture to them on this subject because they believed that he was wrong about his information. And as he told the story, slightly exaggerated from what actually happened, but I'll tell it his way. The door flung open just as the vote was about to begin. And Margaret Mead, who was not very tall, the famous anthropologist, walked in with her six foot wooden staff that she carried and looked around the room and everybody got quiet and pounded it on the floor to get their attention wham, 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 and said, am I to understand that you are just about to hold a vote on a question of scientific fact? And everybody, they didn't vote. That obviously was the right question to ask. 
a kind of worse event from Ed's point of view because he, he loved the, 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 the Margaret Mead intervention, obviously. But later on at a meeting at the American Association for the uh, Advancement of Science, the largest uh, group of organiza organizations for scientists in America, there was uh, a deliberate setup where Ed was speaking from the podium with a number of other people on stage. And a group that had seated itself in the front row of, of activists got up and started denouncing him. One of the young women went up on stage behind him, picked up a pitcher of ice water and dumped the water on his head saying, Wilson, you're all wet. And that really troubled him. He said later, the only instance I know where someone was attacked on a stage in the United States, a scientist for his ideas. Yeah. But what actually bothered him more is that no one in this audience, a fellow scientist, got up to help, stood up and denounced them. Eventually, there was a round of applause for him. And one of his friends, Napoleon Chagnon, who was a maverick anthropologist himself, who didn't get along with his colleagues, tried to come forward to help, but was blocked by all the people who were milling around down below. So he really did get, you know, and it changed him. I asked him this later because I noticed that's when he turned, within a year or so, he turned from sociobiology and dealing with those that set of ideas to working on ecology, to working on the environment, which of course is a much friendlier place to go. And I challenged him on that. I said, did you change that because of your experience of being attacked? And he rather huffily said, well, yeah, it's not a great pleasure to be constantly attacked. <laughs> and, and, and rightly so, here was another field that needed support. Here was a field where Around that time, it had been a general belief among biologists that we were losing in the world about, by extinction, about one species a year. Hmm. From Ed's perspective, he was aware of that. From his perspective, he could go ahead and do the work he had been doing in sociobiology. That, that was not enough to bring him into the field. But someone finally sat down and really did the numbers and realized we were losing about one species a day. And at that point, Ed was electrified and, and activated and connected with some friends of his who'd been trying to draw him into this field for a long time and started writing about ecology yeah. and continued for the rest of his life. I want to focus in on that that moment with him where um, I think you were right to you know focus to it's push him and to ask him if you know he was kind of pressured out of the the field of sociobiology but in, in your read of that time period and moments where people were protesting you know, as i was re-researching that time period in his own life with what happened to him i mean it, it seemed like he was there was an attempt to cancel him um oh. before that was even possible because he was trespassing on a taboo that people deeply held and if an articulate well-informed person stands up and publicly uh, lays waste to some ideology that you may hold there they are a threat to your worldview sure. um 
what what was it that he was that he had discovered or was pointing to that was causing that kind of a reaction? I know it has to do with genes specifically, but it, as you were researching that time period, why was it so dangerous to people? Why why do you think other human beings were getting so worked up about it? Well, it was those two things that I mentioned, which is, first of all, the belief that human beings were infinitely malleable. That was basically a political perspective. Yeah. His idea that we are not infinitely malleable, that there are certain fundamental behaviors that humans have that are universal. Uh, incest avoidance is one famous example. Every group of people in the world have ways to avoid incest within there because uh, from an evolutionary point of view, that's a very destructive behavior. It, it inbreeds people and reduces their resistance to all sorts of things. That's just the most famous example. There are a number of others. Hmm. That was one part, and, and that was because they, guys like Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewontin at Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould's a pretty famous guy, really wanted to believe that, that people could be reshaped to, uh, and that science itself could be reshaped. I don't quite know what they had in mind, and I don't know how you do that. Science in the service of a political doctrine isn't science. <laughs> you have yeah. to go where the evidence takes you. You can't just go with where you'd like to go. So one is a kind of a, a vision of the future, and the other is what's real, science being the one that says what's real. Hmm. So. That was part of it. And the other part, I think, is that it was really was the earliest days of a kind of cancel culture frame that says African-Americans have a unique culture that's their own and that you have to accept as part of the fact that they're different in that regard. You know, genetically speaking, there there's no such thing as race in, in the sense that it's meant in biology. There are people who are different colors for various reasons uh, that have more to do with where their original population was located in terms of the amount of sunlight they were exposed to. But, but, but in terms of race, that's a social definition of race. You don't find inherent behaviors built into the fact that you're brown or you're white or you're yellow or you're red. You just don't. So that whole thing is still very much floating around, unfortunately. And Ed trespassed on that ground too. And I think some of the student resistance came along those lines. But I can see why people were so, so troubled by it. And people just really, as we've now learned to, to, to a fairly well, have a lot of problem where science impinges on their, their beliefs and their hopes and their fears, most of yeah. all. We're seeing, we've seen that with the Trump era uh, in spades, Lord knows. So there are all those things. I should, let me just mention though, Ed was vindicated in his, in his argument in sociobiology. Uh, there was a study done in the 90s. You know, one of the ways you could look at what's, what's genetic and what's not genetic in humans is to look at identical twins who are raised separately or have, uh, as, as, happens quite often when twins are separated at birth and adopted by different families. There was a study that was done that pulled together every study of twins that had ever been done back to around 1950. It was something like 8,000 
peer-reviewed scientific papers covering a total of a, several hundred thousand pairs of twins mm. around the world. And they, Ed, I, I had mentioned earlier, Ed concluded about 10% of human behavior has some genetic foundation. The rest is free form. The rest is, is learned. This study indicated pretty strongly that 49% of human behavior is genetically based and 51% is learned. Hmm. So if it was up in the air when Ed was, was making his argument, I, I don't think it's up in the air anymore. A lot of human behavior is based on, learn, on, on, on what we're born with. Yeah. Again, broad strokes, not in terms of individual qualities. There are a few quotes that I, I wrote down uh, from him that I wanted to read to you and um, that I think speak to his his broadness of thinking. And also, this is a remark I, I heard in doing research for this conversation that he wrote like a poet. Um, there are a few that I, I just want to want to read out loud. Um, one is related to what we just talked about. Political ideology can corrupt the mind and science. The second one I'd love to read is, we are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. The world henceforth will be run by synthesizers, people able to put together the right information at the right time, think critically about it, and make important choices wisely. The third one I want to read is, destroying rainforests for economic gain is like burning a Renaissance painting to cook a meal. And then the, the last one, the last one that I wanted to read, which I, I included in a, in a book I wrote, um, about a decade ago, which I've always thought was profound. And he has some very Twitter-esque pithy lines that you know, he's, he's left to the world. And this one is the human mind evolved to believe in the gods. It did not evolve to believe in biology. <laughs> yes. Those are also typical of Ed. <laughs> this this is something about him that you know I was reading in from various people who said that he in many ways was Darwin's rightful heir. Um, how do you think about his place in the pantheon of evolutionary biologists in scientists? Where is he in that? domain in your mind and and why is he why does he hold that place from your perspective Ed is you know there was darwin and then mendel who really finished darwin by providing a mechanism for darwinian evolution to occur you know darwin's problem was what causes these changes that are then acted on by by behavior to to lead to a selection in favor of one version rather than another of a given species. Hmm. But he didn't know exactly what made the change in the first place. And it was Mendel who came up with the, the mechanism in his famous studies of, of peas, actually flowering peas. Then the next big breakthrough was certainly uh, Watson and Crick in their realization that, I mean, DNA had been identified as the material of, of selection before Watson and Crick. I think the famous paper was 1950, 1948, 49. 
what Watson and Crick did was realize that. Sorry, I have some noise going on. No problem. There. Okay. What Watson and Crick did was realize that the structure of this molecule was an obvious way that you could basically have a code in the form of chemicals attached to each other, molecules attached to each other, that would serve as a kind of a blueprint for the evolution of or the development of an evolutionary form. And that it would be the mistakes that were made in copying this little molecule as it was reproduced, kind of like typographic errors when you're writing, uh, that Darwinian evolution with its challenge of fitness would, would act upon. Mm -hmm. So their breakthrough, which Ed always acknowledged was far more important than any work he ever did. He and Watson had an enormous battle at Harvard in the 1950s because Watson wanted to throw out all of what he called the stamp collectors, the, the, yeah. the field biologists, if you were, and just do all the biology in the laboratory now that you, it could be done at, supposedly on a molecular level. Ed pointed out that organisms are much more complicated than molecules and that they have their own level of, of knowledge and information to be gleaned by scientists that you need in field biology. You had to go study the organisms once they had been produced by DNA. But Watson disagreed and they fought bitterly for a long time before they finally reconciled. So Ed's idea was to stay with field biology and continue that rich work, which of course is what he wanted to do anyway. So that yeah. worked well and Harvard finally solved the problem the way religions do by splitting into two sects. There was a department of molecular biology. There was a department of evolutionary biology. Yeah, I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation and I'd love to spend some time towards the end of, of our chat about Ed the man. Um, and I'll, I'll provide some context from, from my side. What, the first time I think I ever discovered Ed Wilson was via the Charlie Rose show in sometime in the, in the early 2000s. And one of the first things that I think um, resonated with me is that he has a, a graceful kindness to him that I think just makes him an easier subject to learn from when he's presenting new scientific information or sharing his opinions on his most recent book. Um, you know, he had such a brutal upbringing in some ways in, in terms of what it sounds like his, the way that his father's life had gone, some of his father's habits. How do you, how do you make sense of his ability to become who he was despite, um, that early childhood, which you've already alluded to during this conversation. You know, I think I, I have some experience with all that because I spent my adolescence at a boys home after escaping a stepmother out of Grimm's fairy tales uh, with a brother of mine who saved us by going to the police. You either turn out to be a replica of the brutalizer in your life or you turn out to be someone with empathy for other people. Yeah. And it, out that way. And then in a deep sense, it's one of the real connections he and I had. But he also, 
he also had a, you know, his family was an old Southern family uh, that had moved there from Rhode Island back in the 1840s, 1830s. One of his, one of his grand, great grandparents was a ship's captain. He had a proud Southern tradition that was independent of the racist racism problem that, that gave him a sense of who he was. He also had a very loving mother. And I don't know if you know the theory that good presidents are made by having good mothers, but it certainly seems to be the case if you look at our presidents by and large. Uh, and, and so Ed had that as well. Uh, but, you know, he was really quite steely underneath that. I remember asking him once how he could kill ants with such abandon as he had to do in the course of his research. And he just looked at me and said, well, they don't know. It was like, what are you asking me about? It's just an ant, for God's sake. Yep. <laughs> there was that side. There was also, you would, someone said of him that he was a bomb thrower in his science. By that, they meant someone who would deliberately upset the apple cart on a regular basis. His sociobiology being a very good example of that. Mm. Later on, in the early 21st century, in the later years of his career, in fact, after he retired at Harvard, he introduced the idea that there was indeed something like group selection. You know, Darwinian selection is all based on individuals. And if you get group effects, it's simply because the individuals uh, are, are behaving in ways that are more ad adaptive and advantageous, and the collectivity follows from that. Hmm. He argued to the contrary, as Darwin, Darwin believed in group selection to a degree, but was never really able to identify the mechanism. And Ed felt that he was, and he published some papers on it with a couple of really sharp mathematicians he found at Harvard who did the, did the numbers to, to, they felt, prove their argument that there is a selection by groups as well as by individuals. And that's still totally controversial long now that it is gone because that simply was, was heresy in, in traditional biology. So he was a bit of a bomb thrower. He liked to shake things up. He felt that that's the way science moved forward. If people were attacking each other and working with each other and going out to damn it, prove that they're right and the other guy's wrong. All of those, all of those qualities. Academic life can be very, very timid because so much, well, I think it was Kissinger who famously said those people fight so hard with each other because the stakes are so small. Yeah. But that was a famous Kissinger remark, but uh, that's unfair. But certainly people are hesitant, particularly until they get tenure to really take make much of a move toward enlarging their science. Ed never hesitated to do that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think I think his qualities of, of generosity come through because people were generous with him. Uh, as he, you know, he was down at the University of Alabama getting a master's and his faculty at Alabama said, you don't belong here, you belong at Harvard. And they started working to get him there. They found a way to get him there. They talked to their professors at Harvard. They helped him find scholarship money, grants for his graduate study. So as always, I think with people who grew up with some sense of generosity and fellow feeling in the world, they were helped. They had help along the way. He yeah. always watched that. The last question I would love to ask you, um, 
before just saying thank you for doing this and and sharing you know we've talked about two primary subjects which are very different today but um, I know you spent many years on on both what do you think about Ed's relevance and importance to the world now I mean he's no longer with us but you know, for people that are just getting familiar with his work, what's the high level, most important, you know, one or two points about his life, about his work that you think really does have an enduring resonance um, to the world, to the scientific community, but I guess maybe more so to humanity in general that you think really, really matters? I see two things. His work in, in the environment, I think, is very important. He started a movement which is still growing, got support from people like Paul Simon, the singer, yeah. financial support, started a foundation to try to save what's left of the wilderness in the world. Because, as he liked to say, you know, if you cut down a forest, it can grow back in 100 years. But if you cause species to go extinct, as a result, for example, of cutting down a forest, hmm. uh, they took millions of years to evolve. They're never going to come back. So therefore, we have to save the places where those endangered species live. If we're going to keep the kind of variety in the world's creaturely population that we need to keep, not simply because it's nice to go see the bugs in the woods, or the, the, the tigers in the forest, but also because they're the origin of all the new plants we may need for medicine, for food, and so forth. They're the, they're the place where our future lies. If, if there's anything in biology, natural biology, the, the wild biology of the world that, that we need, that's where it is. It's in those species of plants and animals and insects and birds. So if we let all that go, what are we left with? Concrete? We're left with an impoverished world of possibilities. Hmm. That I think was, was a very important part of what he did. But he's not alone in that. The other side of his work is classic science. And there in a way, people will not like to hear this, I think, but the movement of science across the centuries has been more and more away from a religious structure for the mm. world, mm. or a, a structure that's based on the natural facts of the world. Thus, Copernicus took the earth from the center of the universe as it was believed to be, and placed it properly as a planet rotating around a minor sun. Uh, thus, Darwin took us from being a special creation of God to another mammal living among the mammals. And in a way, what Ed did with his work was say, we don't even have complete control of our behavior. Mm -hmm. Some of it we, we inherited from, from our ancestors, if you will. He wrote in his book on human nature at the beginning of a little passage that I remember to this day vividly because it really knocked me to the floor. It was so powerful. He said, when we've solved all these problems that we currently face, when we've dealt with global warming as he thought we would, 
one way or the other, we would solve it. Mm. When, we've, when we've stopped any population uh, excess, when we've stabilized the food supply, when we've improved the lives of people so that we're all living reasonably well in the world, we're going to reach a point where we realize that we don't have any ultimate purpose in life. Hmm. Our, our purpose is to reproduce, just like all the other creatures in the world. There's no divine celestial endpoint in human life, as, of course, religion has always taught us there was. He saw that as a spiritual crisis for humanity to hmm. come perhaps in 100 years as great as the spiritual crisis that, that that occurred with Darwin and is still ongoing with Darwin, as great as the crisis that occurred when people realized that they that we were not the center of the universe. So that to me is a more subversive, but also realistic message. Niels Bohr, one of my heroes in science, a great physicist, but also a great philosopher, like to say that the function of science is not power over nature. Function of science is the gradual removal of prejudice. Mm -hmm. And in a way, what I just described to you is, is that deeply subversive, but inevitable, I think, if you're going to understand how the world really works. We're people who love to wish the world worked the way we dream it should. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, it works the way it works. Yeah. We're the you have to adapt to that, not the world. That's what when. Ed and what was, if I can sneak in one final question about that, what was Ed's answer to the forthcoming spiritual crisis? I feel like you can almost feel that now um, in many parts of America, especially as religion has receded and its its primary importance to many people who live in this country. What what were his thoughts about? where we go from there to answer those calls for meaning and spirituality. <laughs> he didn't offer any, except he was a very profound believer in the, the richness and complexity and depth of science. Hmm. Was he, the one place in his writing where he really writes with some contempt is about philosophers. He thought of them as armchair thinkers who didn't get out and do their field work. And of course, that's true. Philosophy, yeah. at least in the classical sense of philosophy, is about people sitting around thinking, well, maybe this is true. And if that's true, then you do the logic and this follows. He just, he really despised that attitude toward taking the easy road, as he would think of it, and not going out and seeing how the world really works. And for me, I think that really, I mean, the truth is, the natural world is fractal. It's equally complicated at every level, from the bottom to the top, from the left to the right. There is no limit to how much there is to learn about the world in all of its beauty and all of its horror and all of its complexity. That's there for all of us forever. And to me personally, because I'm very much of the same mind he is, for me personally, that's enough. Yeah. As, as one of the scientists said about Robert Oppenheimer when he was being accused of having subverted the bomb program, having given the world, he said, he gave you the atomic bomb, he gave you the hydrogen bomb, he gave you all this and that and the other. What do you want, mermaids? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's Ed's argument too. Yeah. Richard, this was such a pleasure. And I know you are a very busy man with a lot going on. Um, I just want to say personally how much I appreciate you giving me so much time 
uh, to go over this in detail. And um, I have a, a ton of respect for the work that you've done. And I, I think people like Ed are important to highlight. And I have a lot of respect for the work and energy you've put into making him more publicly accessible to people who want to learn about his life. So um, thanks a lot for doing this. It was really wonderful to meet you. You're welcome. And thank you for, for spreading this word. It's fun to talk to you. And it's also a delight to have an audience that might want to go read more about Ed and read Ed's book, most of all on human nature, I think. Very good. Thanks a lot, Richard. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 